Hey there, listeners. This is Drew Johnson from the Biblical Mind Podcast. I'm also the director of the Center for Hebraic Thought, and it's that time of year where we shamelessly come to you and ask for money. The Center for Hebraic Thought actually does a lot of things. You may only know us through this podcast, but we also publish weekly articles from scholars and experts uh, translating the fruits of biblical thinking into all kinds of practical issues for daily life. Uh, We put on events, we do workshops training uh, pastors, pastoral staff, church leaders on how to think uh, alongside the biblical authors. We create videos, we have this podcast. And the truth is, we need your help to do these things. If every one of you listeners just gave $100, we could actually cover our costs for the year. Obviously, not everybody can give $100, but that's what it would take to cover our operating costs for the year. Now, that might sound like a lot of money, but we actually do a lot of things between the Center for Hebraic Thought and the Biblical Mind. We have a lot of people that work on every episode, from the graphic artist to the person who creates the show notes to the audio editor uh, to the person who schedules the interviews with all of our special guests. It takes a village to raise a podcast episode, much less a weekly episode. And so we're asking you at the end of this year, you can give to us. It's tax deductible, which means the bigger the gift, the bigger the tax deduction. You can go to hebraicthought.org slash give. That's hebraic, H-E-B-R-A-I-C, thought.org slash give. And you can give a donation of any size from $1 to $100 and beyond. You can give us a horse, a sheep, a bag of hay, a used car. No, I'm just kidding. We actually prefer cash, but you can do that at hebraicthought.org slash give. And now to our episode. This is the Biblical Mind Podcast. Produced by the Center for Hebraic Thought. Honest five-star reviews help others find this podcast. Visit the magazine at thebiblicalmind.org for articles and videos that explore the deep structures of Scripture. So what's a common stumbling block for engaging the, the Near East? I think the biggest stumbling block is the fact that I founded Philos in 2014 after approximately 13 years of, you know, bad vibes, U.S. or or Western engagement in this part of the world. You think of Osama bin Laden, you think of Saddam Hussein, you think of ISIS, you think of every possible bad thing uh, that's happened to America in the last two decades. And keeping in mind that you have a whole generation that's grown up only knowing that. That's the only story they know. They think Near East or Middle East, you know, terrorism. It's just, that's it. Equals terrorism. Equals trauma. Equals my cousin, my brother went to war and came back messed up, right? There's all of these associations attached to this place. And whenever I, before I even begin to speak, right, or even finish the sentence, all of those associations are in the room. And and usually what I find myself doing is in the Q&A, Right after I've spoken and after no one's heard what I've said, <laughs> I'm trying to <laughs> field all of these objections, these questions, these you know, the skepticism about why would we do anything there? I mean, just leave it. It's got nothing to do with us. And I think that ultimately is where the misunderstanding comes from. It's that for many Christians uh, and for many 
even Americans, even people who are not very faithful, this region is mistakenly understood as completely alien, right? On on par with Manchuria or New Zealand, right? Just right. some other part of the world that is completely disconnected to me, and God willing, it'll stay that way. Is it like Idaho, one of those states that's made up and put on the map. <laughs> yeah, I, I'm sure you have listeners in Idaho, so <laughs> we love Idaho. Uh, yeah, I, and I, I think that that's exactly right. Is even when I go, you know, I'm taking a group of students to Israel this summer, and or sorry, in, in January, and um, I still have people saying, "Oh, is it is it safe there?" Like this this general like warning, Will Robinson, like everything everything mm-hmm. is dangerous, everything because you don't understand the language, the land, the people. Um, so besides being scary, I guess what's one of the the specific? Because it's interesting, you said soldiers going over there, but every soldier you talk to spent time in Afghanistan, which obviously is very different from the Near East, I guess. But or Iraq, they will all tell you about the culture and how the people there are very intelligent and like all of these things they learned about the culture. If they didn't just kick in doors, if they spent any time with locals, um, they learned a lot, and it was surprising to them, right? Um. So I wonder how do you cross that bridge with people to get them, you know, or or how do you invite those associations to leave the room so that you can have an honest conversation about what's going on in the Near East? Well, with Christians, it's it's much easier, right? Because people know, even if they've forgotten temporarily, that their faith comes from there. Jesus right. was a Jew. I mean, there is there is that, and uh, sometimes you see on their face a moment where. They, they remember and say, oh, right, right. Yeah, yeah, okay, I'll yeah. give you that. And building on that is usually the best way to do so. Another way to do it is to talk about the human dimension. Okay, mm-hmm. fine, you may, you may not care, but the people who live there care about what's happening, and there's real suffering. So if you care about humans, if you care about you know humanity as a whole or, or kind of where we're going here in the second third decade of the 20th century, 21st century, then, then you should care about this. And, and here are some of the, the situations that, that matter most. Of course, the Syrian civil war, the biggest humanitarian disaster of our lifetime. I mean, does it, does it matter to you? Uh, you don't have to be a Christian or, or even an American to, to care about that. So that's another way of talking about it. And also by showing people ways in which this thing called Western civilization that everyone loves to tout, well, most most everyone, is is really only comprehensible in reference to the Near East from which right. it came, right? There is no West without the Near East. That's That's the whole thing. And once you start to draw those connections for people, uh, and show them that the things they want so badly to protect actually don't originate, right, in our part of the world, there is new respect, I think, for, for what this region was, but also what it is and what it could be in the future. I think the... Um even when I talk to scholars, I mean, you made that simple point you, you made about the West having many of its origins in the, the Near East, and specifically in the, the Israelite Hebrew tradition, right? Mm-hmm. Um, e- even, you know, scholars I talk to today, they're like, okay, yeah, say more about that. <laughs> then you have to really draw, like, like I said, draw the, connect the dots, draw the lines between them. Um, 
But what what do you mean? Because I have a whole series of things that I mean when I say those kinds of things. I'm interested to say, because you always surprise me. Uh, you say things I don't expect. So I wonder what you mean when you say the history of the West is deeply rooted in the Near East. Right. Well, I think I, I probably say many of the same things that you do, right? And in, in, in terms of the, the principles that seem so, you know, uh, American apple pie things things about justice and equality and freedom these words that have almost been overused to the point of having no meaning mm-hmm. are really only uh, uh, things for us by virtue of their their near eastern connection right they all came from Jerusalem and its and its hinterland mm-hmm. and uh, I do often uh, what you do drew and try to shock people and in showing them that these things don't come from anywhere else, right? You, you just, every, every prism through which you look at the world was made in the Near East. And, you know, good luck trying to fashion a world without it. I mean, you just can't, you can't do it. You can't have the Universal Declaration of Human Rights. You, you can't even have something, I would argue, like the United Nations. They just don't exist in a world that is based purely on power. Right, the best world that uh, was created uh, uh, beyond the just pure power politics was a world based on reason, right? Based on rationality, and I'm a, I love reason, but reason has never been enough to to animate people and to build just societies. It just it just never was, right? You need the Hebraic tradition. You need this worldview coming out of the the Hebrew Bible and you don't even have to believe it you don't have to believe a word of it to know that this is where all of the good stuff comes from and you said Hebrew Bible but I think most people would have thought you were going to say the New Testament at the end of that sentence <laughs> uh, why well, not Hebrew Bible or, well, well sorry, the, why the, not New Testament the New Testament is is an extension of the Old Testament you know so for me the the Hebraic worldview comes out of both Old and New Testament, what we call Old and New Testament. I don't think it's any secret that Jesus and the uh, disciples, the apostles, were all reading the the Old Testament, right? Reading the Hebrew Bible. There is uh, that blank page between the two that uh, is is very sensible for us living in 2022, but really doesn't make any sense when you think about where these texts came from, the people who wrote them, the shared worldview that animated them in writing them. There was no discontinuity. There was no, there was no rupture. The advent of Jesus Christ obviously was a, a, uh, a major watershed in, in the history of this tradition. But there have been other watersheds, right? This one for us Christians just happens to be the most pivotal but this is a this is a tradition that has developed that has iterated over time and to say that there is a hebrew bible and that from that hebrew bible comes this thing the new testament that we package as as one volume is really uh, not that shocking you know of course for practitioners of judaism there's there's no real discontinuity between tanakh and the and the Mishnah or the Gemara, right? All these successive layers of interpretation. I think it's a very, it's a very sensible thing in in Hebraic tradition to have layers, right? Building one on top of the other. And so you talked about uh, previously the issue of power and power politics and um, how 
the, the turning upside down of power politics in the Hebrew Bible and the New Testament is unique to that tradition. Um, I think, though, when most people look at the Middle East today uh, and they look at Israel and Jordan and Egypt and Syria and, uh, and uh, surrounding nations, all they think of is power, is that it's all power all the way down. Uh, is that how you read the map? I One of the things I often caution Christians against is so undermining the concept of power that it becomes almost evil right to be powerful to have power to mm. wield power is bad i just read with my son this morning second samuel mm. i don't know chapter 8 chapter 9 we're, we're going through the samuels and uh, it's a pretty it's a pretty power laden chapter when david upon receiving the kingship finally after all of this you know angst and in, in all this drama with saul and and saul's successors takes the kingdom and proceeds to let's say, uh, push back on all of the enemies surrounding Israel. Because yeah. why? Because that's what political leaders do. That's what kings do. Kings have armies. Part of their job, as ordained by God, is to protect their people, is to protect that people's way of life. And to do that in this broken world, one needs power. So while the Hebraic uh, worldview turns things upside down, as you say, and, and puts power beneath the spirit it doesn't delegitimize power right there is still a need both in the old and the new testament for for armies and for kings and for magistrates and for judges right and in the enforcement of judgments these things are all necessary to the just world that the hebrew bible imagines so when i see uh, the use of power for me uh, i see something neutral power is like anything else in this world, it can be used for for bad, and it can it can be used for good. And certainly, in the region today, in the Near East, you see all kinds of bad uses of power, irresponsible uses of power, uh, over overreaching uh, of power, oppression, etc. But you also see uh, responsible power, and thank God for it. I mean, I personally love the fact that if something bad happens in my neighborhood, I can call 911 and somebody with a gun can come and enforce the laws that have been created for this society. And so I think that it's important for us to keep in mind that while there are, especially in this region, lots of just horrible, gross abuses of power, there are also very important ways in which power can be used to check those abuses, right? And, and I could name different examples, but you do see them. I think the United States uh, has played, despite many of our, our missteps, mistakes, uh, uh, an important role in that regard as, as allies of, of countries that want to see a better region, that want to see more pluralism. And I think, frankly, that, that we could do a lot more, right? And I'm not talking about invading. That's where everybody's mind goes. It's, <laughs> it's a very different way uh, of engaging that, that we advocate for at Philos, uh, but one that is nonetheless... Um, thinking about both power and spirit at the same time. And you need both. I think as a Christian, we are uniquely qualified to see uh, both dimensions of, of the issue and to not focus only on one at the expense of the other. Yeah, living in New Jersey now for 12 years, I feel like I understand really corrupt uses of power. Um, <laughs> but it's, it's, it, right. it hits different in, in New Jersey. But 
The yeah, you said as Christians we are uniquely qualified. So uh, Philos Project, which you founded, has this tagline: positive Christian engagement in the Near East. Um, when you say positive Christian engagement, do you mean like my great aunt uh, should be positively engaging uh, in the Near East, or do you mean just select a select few? Or yeah, how how broad does that spectrum go? I think I think there's a pyramid. I think. Uh your your great aunt has a has a role to play may her memory be blessed may her memory be blessed uh, you know for example we have uh I'll just do a shameless plug here we we have a we have a big campaign coming up through the end of the year you don't need to be you know a phd or a policymaker at the state department to pr- to participate in this it's basically bringing the families of the 21 coptic martyrs that were mm. killed on a beach in libya by isis on a once in a lifetime pilgrimage to Jerusalem. I went and visited them back in 2019 right before COVID hit. Incredibly moving experience. I can recount it if you like. And uh at some point in the evening the 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 priest came up to me and pulled me aside and said, "You know, I want to ask you a question. Um these people have have one dream. There's something they always talk about, something they've always wanted to do. They want to go see the Church of the Holy Sepulchre in Jerusalem, the place where Jesus was was crucified and buried before he resurrected. Do you think you can help them mm. achieve that dream? And you know, of course, I wasn't thinking at the moment of fundraising or, or how to do it exactly. I said, are you kidding me? It would be my honor. Of course I will. And uh, COVID hit shortly thereafter. Everything went on pause. But... Um, now that things are open again, we're we're back at it. So something like that, right? This is a way to positively engage the region to do so in a way that's more than just blankets and band aids uh, or bullets, uh, and to and to speak to the spirit of things, right? And to begin to find ways to cross borders, both both physical and psychological, and to inspire hope. You know, it's it's not enough, I think, especially for the these indigenous Christian communities to you know, just send them money. Of course, many of them need that, but there's also this feeling of, of hopelessness, right? And this, and this trip is, is a way to do that. So there's, 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 there's ways like that, that anybody can be involved in. Mm-hmm. It just takes somebody to be creative and be thoughtful and spot opportunities as they come up. And then there are ways for people closer to the top of the pyramid, people who go into this as a career, right? Whether it's inside the State Department or in U.S. government or in the church, right? In the international uh, office of this or that denomination or who go into media or, you know, who become journalists. There are all kinds of ways for, for other people who feel a special calling to promote positive Christian engagement in a way that is disproportionately impactful. So in our programs, we're always looking for those people, those the people in that latter category who want to do this for real, while always trying to find opportunities for everyone else, your 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 great aunt, to uh, to to join this as well, right? It's not going to be her life or anyone in your family's whole focus, but you know, to the extent they can do something, they would love to, and so it's up to us to come up with those opportunities. Um, I think everybody wants peace in the Middle East, right? We, we even used to say that phrase a long time ago. <laughs> I haven't heard it. <laughs> Seems in a, quaint. Yeah, now. I was going to say, I haven't heard it in a long time. But um, but I, I wonder, you know, A, this is a, 
you know, there's a multi-step process by which things need to happen in order for there just to be basic uh, peace between nations, even, even Arab Muslim nations, right? I mean, that's one thing that I think a lot of us don't understand is that even Arab Muslims of various flavors and sorts and borders uh, have trouble getting along with one another. Um, but then you also have Israel in the mix as well. And then you have like Lebanese Christians, Syrian Christians, uh, Israeli Christians, you know, et cetera. Although those are probably very few in number. Um, when people confront you with this question of, well, what is the solution? So what are you trying to solve for? If I can put it in mathematics terms, uh, like, what are you doing? Like, what, what's, what are the possible outcomes here? Because I don't, I'm going to guess peace in the Middle East is not the out, the the number one outcome you're going for. Well, it's it's out there, uh, even if I'm not sure it will come until the Prince of Peace arrives. Right. But I think in the meantime, my answer is pluralism, and that's a very commonly misunderstood word. What I don't mean is relativism. For some reason, whenever I say pluralism, people think, oh, so you think everything's fine, right? Every All people go to heaven <laughs> we'll, and no religion's we'll really true. We'll blame apologetics classes on that. <laughs> I guess. I don't know where <laughs> bad, that comes bad from. Bad apologetics classes. I get that response yeah. all the time. I'm yeah. like, wait, wait, wait. No, no I'm not talking about World that. Worldview weekend. We, we got an eye on you. <laughs> <laughs> pluralism is, it's, it's a kind of minimal piece. What it means is that people who are different find a way to respect each other. Mm. And by respect, I don't mean admire. That's another mm. misconception yeah. that, oh, I respect somebody. That means I I love what they do. I love their religion. I love their tradition. Not necessarily. Maybe you do. But maybe you just respect it, which is to say you give it its place, right? You sort of take a step back and look at it. That's actually etymologically what the word respect means. Mm. And what I tell people is that we're 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 looking for some we're, it's a very low bar right all we're asking people to do people of different ethnicities people of different religions and even different sects within the same religion is to find a way to respect the person uh living next door really it's it's as simple as that so we saw something here uh just a couple of years ago with the abraham accords not many people have heard about this, but it was a series of peace deals between Israel and, and four Arab countries that kind of came out of nowhere toward the end of 2020. And if you look at the texts of the agreements that were signed or read anything about these uh, agreements or the relationships that ensued after they were signed, you won't find anywhere that Israel or these majority Muslim countries are you know, deciding to forget everything that's ever happened or to make their religions one or to you know you know make a single country together it's not it's not that at all it's not it truth is a, and reconciliation committees in any way no right? yeah. it's not it's a minimal mutual respect that says you are who you are i'm not that and i'm not going to be that don't try to make me be that you be you and i'll be me and we will find a way to live together without killing each other it's actually that simple. I'm not trying to get much more than that. I think if we had something like that and more of it, this region would look a lot different than it does today. The problem in the Near East is a, is a variety of unifying, of monist uh, tendencies and ideologies, which says everybody has to be the same thing. Everyone has to be 
Muslim. Everyone has to be Arab. Everyone has to be secular, right? That's the other extreme. Mm -hmm. And that's, that's where things become bad. And lots of atrocities are committed uh, under the name of homogeneity, right? Of saying, we need to make our country all one thing. And anybody who's a dissenter can't be part of it. I'm not against a country being Muslim or Jewish or Christian, but uh, the where things go wrong is when they force people who are not that, who live in the country, to be that on pain of you know persecution and death. If you can get people to understand that difference is okay, right, uh, and it doesn't mean relativism, it doesn't mean universalism, cosmopolitanism, it's just difference, and it can be tolerated, then I think the region starts to move in a good direction. And we're seeing it. There are rays of light. It's not all bad. There are good things that are happening. And at Philos, we're always trying to point people to that and you know, kind of fan the, the flames, so to speak, to, to make those things go forward. Yeah, and I think everybody's a little concerned right now because obviously the, the new Knesset is being formed uh, with a fairly radical right-wing element to it. Um, uh, but... So that doesn't that doesn't give a lot of hope, <laughs> and which makes me wonder when you say pluralism. So how far down uh, does this go? So does this mean you know? I assume you mean more than I just won't kill you, um, but uh, does it also mean like if you know I'm going to look out for if I'm in in Israel because obviously in Israel you have uh, Arab Muslims and, and Jews kind of living right next to each other. So I guess that's where the biggest rub is between two religions. Um, on the same land, but does it also mean like uh, I, as a Jewish um, landlord, I'm going to look out for my Muslim neighbors. I'm going to make sure that they're safe and vice versa that, it, you know, if uh, I need to get them to the hospital, et cetera. Or does it mean like literally like we can live next to each other. We don't have to look at each other. We don't have to talk to each other. We can just, you know, kind of like New York city on the streets. <laughs> look, I'll start, I'll start there. Okay. Because this <laughs> if region we can just is, get that. Yeah. <laughs> if we can get that, we're, yeah. we're, we're making progress. But I think of course, we would like more than that. And I think, you know, you're talking about Israel. It's, it's really the most pluralistic country in, in, in the region. I don't think it's even close in terms of extending rights to people who are not part of the majority population, right? You can be Muslim, you can be Christian, you can be Druze, you can be Baha'i, and you can be an Israeli citizen and vote for the Knesset and, and do all the things, right? Now, what's the West Bank and Gaza are disputed, right? It's a it's an ongoing conflict with no resolution. Unfortunately, no resolution in sight for the time being. So there's special cases. But in Israel proper, it's it's an extremely pluralistic country and it goes far beyond the minimal, like I won't look at you, you won't look at me. The problem comes from people within the country who do have that monist tendency, right? And you certainly see it among a certain subset of the Arab Muslim population who believe that the whole region needs to be either A, all Arab, or B, all Muslim, and especially the, the Holy Land, uh, or both together. Mm -hmm. um, and unfortunately, you're seeing now, and you mentioned these recent elections, you're seeing a counter-reaction within the Jewish community, a community that by and large, whether it's in the Holy Land or anywhere in the world, is pluralistic by default, by, by almost theology. Mm -hmm. um, you're seeing a counter-reaction among Jews who, for reasons of fear, for reasons of uh, you know racism or, or whatever, are, are electing people who, who, who are doing the same thing, but, but the other way, mm -hmm. right? And saying, this is a Jewish country, it needs to be 
all Jewish as much as possible. Okay, maybe fine, keep your head down and we'll tolerate you. But at the end of the day, we really don't want you here. That's I should I should point out that's very new. That's a very right. new thing in Israel. And you know, even if you look at the whole Knesset, it's a very very small you know number of people who are taking that line of reasoning to its you know final conclusion and saying things that are just outright racist, outright um, you know. I mean, to be fair, they say these, genocidal, but yeah. but but quasi you know paving the path for violence future violence toward these minority communities thankfully it's small where that where it will go is uh is not clear i just wrapped up uh, a month-long series about about this on my podcast the deep map trying to you know peel back the layers here with these israeli elections what what is this really about why are israelis voting in this direction lots of interesting things came up everything from you know religious trends to cultural trends to a, a feeling of fear there it's a very complicated situation and i think israel's at a real um transitional moment historically as it approaches its 75th anniversary about you know what kind of country is this and what country what kind of country will it be you know in the future where do minorities fit um ironically you're, you're seeing uh on the arab side more integration and participation in the state that you've ever seen even among some of the most conservative and even fundamentalist Arab Muslims. The, the fact that these two things are coexisting at the same time is just one of those interesting paradoxes of history. Always interesting politics in, in Israel and other places. I there There is this movement, uh, or it's always been there from the very beginning, but this is Israel a Jewish state or not? And then defining what do we mean by Jewish? Do we mean something that's guided fundamentally by the Tanakh, by the tradition, the ethnicity, and obviously Lots of founders of Israel were not religious, you know. Uh, they were communist, Marxist, right? So you get everything across the board in Israel. But if you do say uh, Israel is a Jewish state in some way, in this kind of pluralistic, we can live here and get along. Um, I wonder, have you heard people compare that to like, well, what does it mean that uh, uh, Dubai is a Muslim state? Uh, do do people see those as comparable to each other and say, oh, okay, well, no, we have lots of countries here that are Muslim. Uh, or Sharia Muslim, or sorry, not not Sharia, but uh, um, Shia Muslim versus uh, Sunni, and and Israel is just another one of those. It's it's a Jewish state instead of a Muslim state. Do you, do you ever hear that comparison? I wish I heard it more because it's extremely true, and uh, it's not at all unusual. Not only in the Near East, but in the world. I mean, you can look at Europe. I mean, how many countries have Christian, you know? references to Christianity in the Constitution or crosses right. on their flag. I mean, it's just extremely or common. a straight-up merge of the church and state, you know, like England, A straight-up merge of the church Denmark, and state, right? Yeah. And some of the most, you know, progressive countries in Europe. So it's not at all unusual, but, you know, what is usual is the way in which Jews are singled out, right? And this has something to do with, I think, the what I call the Hebraic tradition, right? This idea that there's a, a special people chosen by God for a special mission in history. That idea has been exported to the world and and sort of bent and twisted and reappropriated in all kinds of ways, and often in ways that that flip the chosen people story on its head, right? So Israel becomes the extremely unchosen, right? And the extremely bad and extremely sinful actor, right? The Jew is the ultimate sinner. And I think that for that reason, lots of people 
don't care that much about the UAE or about even the Palestinian Authority, which is a Sharia government by its own, you know, fun, fundamental law, an Arab and Muslim state, very explicitly, right in the front of of that Palestine Basic Law. People are less. People are not so interested in that. People are very hung up, however, on the fact that Israel can be Jewish. I think part of it, you know, if I wanted to to be a little bit fairer is that people in general who are not Jewish have a hard time understanding what it means to be Jewish. And you kind of referred to it there in the question, right? You mean by halakha, you mean by ethnicity, you mean by some kind of historical memory. Weirdly, it's all of the above mm-hmm. with with Jews. And, and I think so many people have a hard time thinking about that. When they think, when they hear Jewish state, they, they hear Judaism state. Mm-hmm. And when they hear Judaism state, they think about guys with black hats, Right, and so they think it's going to be like a kind of a, a Sharia state, so to speak, for Jews. Um, and while there, you know, there are some Jews that talk like that, it's it's a very, very, very small minority. And I think most Jews realize that until the Messiah comes, right, we're not going to have midinat uh, halacha, as they say. Um, but I think it's just the conceptual oddity of the Jewish people that uh, makes people hear that and say, wait a minute, Jewish state, that doesn't sound right. That doesn't go together, you know? Um, any hope uh, to give us, if you were to give the, the average Christian who's listening, uh, hey, um, here's something good to pray for, to think about, to think about your participation in, you know, what's a low hanging fruit uh, way for people to move from here into uh, we have your podcast, The Deep Map, which they can listen to lots more of analysis on and history about what's going on in the region. What else do you have? I think the most important thing for Christians to pray about right now is that the good trends in the region continue to develop and to grow. Um, I think history is always moving in two directions at once. I think it's a Christian principle of, you know, Christian philosophy of history is that things are simultaneously always getting worse and always moving toward a culmination and redemption at the same time. And so when you see the world, you see that duality, it's often hard to disentangle the two trends, but they're happening and they're happening all the time. They're happening in the Near East today. And while you are seeing a resurgence of ISIS, while you are seeing the uh, danger of a renewed war in Syria, and you know I could go on and on, you're also seeing positive trends. So I mentioned this unprecedented uh, Arab integration and participation inside the state of Israel, right? People who are very conservative Muslims saying, this is a Jewish state, I'm cool with that. As long as I can be Muslim and practice my faith, I'm ready to not only live here, but participate and try to make a better society for everyone. That's a that's a growing number, not a like a a real significant number of people. That's very positive. Let's pray that grows. Hmm. I think um, what we saw with the Abraham Accords, I mentioned it earlier, this idea that Israel's also expanding its relations with Arabs and, and Muslims outside its borders is really, really exciting. You know, we saw the UAE, Bahrain, Morocco, Sudan. There are other countries that are in the offing. And I think that whatever we can do to pray or even to to play a role in in br- brokering or bridging those relationships is is really key and really timely and the more of that the better people say well what come on come on what does that really do for the region and i always say you know any deal like that the it it brings the temperature down 1 degree 
right? And it's incremental, and you may not see the the massive progress that we may hope for, peace in the Middle East, as you say, but every deal that's made is one more step in the right direction. I would say the last thing is uh, for the growing attention, still small, still way too small, but growing attention on the plight of Christians in the region. I, you know, we're working on a project, the Philos, uh, to bring Christians into this Abrahamic conversation. It's great that Muslims and Jews are making peace, but arguably the Christians in the region who are such a small percentage need this peace more than ever. So how do we get them to the table? We have a whole project about that called Abraham's Missing Child. And I've been so thrilled to be visiting these countries, visiting the embassies of those countries in Washington, D.C., and find a receptive audience, more receptive than I've seen in the time that I've been doing this work, a realization that these communities are suffering, they need special attention, special help, and we as a country are interested to hear what kinds of recommendations you as the Philos Project would make. That's very encouraging, and if Christians are praying for that, um, and it's going to be huge. And not only, I just want to say one last thing on that. I think oftentimes our prayers are, are incorrect about these Christian communities. We pray that persecution will stop, that they'll be able to, uh, you know, thrive and, and survive and all of that. Of course, that's, that's where the prayer should start. But at the end of the day, if you want to speak to the heart of God, pray that uh, the work of his kingdom will expand in this region, right? The Christians will be the witnesses that they um, have always been in so many parts of the world, that they will be the catalyzers for mutual respect and for pluralism, right? It's not just that these Christians survive as these kind of archaic museum exhibits, right? That the Maronites or the Armenians mm. live. It's that, why, why do we care? We care about them as humans, but we also care about them in the, in the overall redemption story, Right, and I think God is not done with this part of the world yet. Right, there's so much that's happening beneath the surface um, within these different communities, both Christian and non-Christian, and we can only see the the shadow of it. Right, the tip of the iceberg. Just I think Christians should be praying that the work of the kingdom is 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 strengthened, is expanded, and that those people who are in the region, uh, who are courageous and who are taking a stand for the name of Jesus and for their neighbor who may not believe in Jesus would be given the the boldness they need, right? The power they need and special opportunities, doors will be open for them so that they can be all that they want to be, right? I meet these people all the time. They're there, right? They need our help, but they also need help from above. So pray for those people. I think that's the most important thing. Well, Robert Nicholson, uh, founder and president of the Philos Project, thank you so much for your wisdom and your guidance. Thank you, Drew. You've been listening to the Biblical Mind Podcast, exploring the deep structures of Christian scripture. For more, visit the magazine at thebiblicalmind.org. Subscribe to this podcast at all the usual places so you never miss an episode.